Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we presuppose you'll enjoy this episode. You can <laughs> you can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me here in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Hello, hello. Dr. Professor Luke Galen is off guarding his pot of gold this week. He's a small man is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I think we have assurances that he will be here for the next one, He right? will be here for the next I, one, I yes. think. <laughs> yes. Um, on today's show, we have part two of our counter-apologetics takedown of presuppositionalism, part two of what will no doubt end up being six or seven parts oh, God. if the presuppositionalists out there get, have their way. But not all in a row. No. <laughs> This is going to go down in the Chronicles along with determinism. Oh, I hope not. I sincerely hope not. Stuff <laughs> we get sick of talking about. But before that, some news. Uh, first off, some very good news. We talked a couple episodes back about Jessica Alquist, um, who was the teenager in um, Cranston, Rhode Island, who sued to have a prayer banner removed from her high school. Oh, right. And she won the court battle there. And they said, no, of course, this is unconstitutional to have a clearly religious um, prayer banner up in the gymnasium. So um, this week it came out that um, the school district has decided not to appeal and will, in fact, take down the prayer banner. Nice. As ordered. Jessica Alquist's lawyers are um, requesting $173,000 in legal fees oh, from gosh. the school district. Wow. Um, and if they appealed the case, they're talking about half a million dollars yeah. in legal fees. What a waste. Well, which is why many parents came out and said, you can't do this. Yeah, this is a right. ridiculous waste yeah. of money. Bankrupting our school. Not business. to mention they, they really don't have a chance. Exactly. Right. I mean, this is not this is not a case that they stand to win. Right. Um, and they, they know that. <laughs> right. Right. And the school can, you know, puff out their chests all they want and act like this is the right thing to do to to fight this. But um, it's not, and they have no legal standing to to win. So um, they did wasted so much cash uh, on a hopeless cause, anyways. Yeah, an exactly. Unjust cause. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, so that at least now has come to uh, 
a, a good resolution and they have decided to take the banner down, which has been covered ever since the court ruling against it. But now they're actually removing it from the school. Hmm. So that's good news. Now, the other news um, that's been all over for the last, I don't know, week and a half or so. Oh, yeah, maybe even longer than that. Maybe even longer than that. (laughs) Obama versus the Catholics. Yeah. Oh, geez. What happened is the Department of Health and Human Services, or the HHS, recently announced rules guaranteeing women coverage of contraception with no copay regardless of where they work with very few exceptions, okay? And now because of this, it's forcing all employers to cover women's contraceptives as part of their their healthcare plan for their female employees, which is good. Mm-hmm. Libertarians will disagree, of course. But they don't know anything. Um, It'll reduce the number of abortions, that's for sure. Absolutely. But of course, the big deal here is that this means that religious institutions, including Catholic institutions in particular, um, who oppose any form of birth control as being sinful and unnatural, um, have to now make sure their female employees have access to free birth control. Wait, are they are, are they going to ask for an exemption here? Well, they they did. <laughs> they threw a fit, and yeah. um, not surprisingly, President Obama compromised mm. because that's what he does. I think this is actually a fair compromise, as opposed to the compromise that led to the subpar healthcare legislation that we have right now. By the way, all of our listeners in other countries where their governments actually take care of them and provide them with health care, must think this stuff is asinine. Like, really? You're arguing about whether women are, can receive birth control? <laughs> this is nuts. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Uh, the compromise amounts to is that the insurance company has to provide the birth control right. as opposed to the employer itself. So in other words, no money is coming out of any religious cleric's pocket. The churches are not paying exactly for birth control. Exactly. The you'd ring, think that would end it, right? You'd think that would mm. end it, but no, it that's not good enough. Now, the ridiculous <laughs> part here is 99% of all women who have had sex have used some form of birth control outside of, say, the rhythm method, have used condoms or the pill or something of that nature. Is this of all women or – Of all women. I thought this was Catholics. This is all women. Catholics, 98%. (laughs) So the Catholic Church can talk all they want about the evils of birth control, but the bottom line is Catholic women are using birth control. Well, actually, in a strange way, that kind of makes me understand their rationale better because they obviously can't count on their own to follow the rules. Right. They're going to try to make sure they can't get it. And, and, And of course, the real bummer of this is not everyone who works for Catholic schools, Catholic hospitals is Catholic. Right. And even clearly 98 percent of Catholic women don't necessarily listen to the Catholic dogma against birth control. But people who are not Catholic shouldn't be punished by not having access to birth control 
because the church doesn't want them to have it. If you are hiring these people to do the job of a doctor or a teacher or a janitor or whatever, you don't get to force your religious beliefs on them and how they take care of their bodies. A large portion of women who are on the pill, by the way, too, are not on for necessarily birth control reasons, but for hormonal reasons and all sorts of other things. That has to be taken into account, too. Yes. One guy who is strongly against birth control in any form, um, the frothy mixture himself, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Rick Santorum, who has, of course, in recent months said things like women who are victims of rape should see their pregnancy as a gift from God. Gotta love that one. Did he really say that? He certainly did. When life gives you rape, you make rape aid. <laughs> oh, my God. How does that not end? Well, you know this what? entire <laughs> hope of, of, of any kind of – oh, my God. The fact that, that Rick Santorum actually has won several yeah. of the caucuses and so forth recently, let's be clear. He still doesn't have a prayer of winning the nomination. He's polling very well yeah, right yeah, here in it. Michigan. Okay, yeah. Which is the next big primary, <clears throat> partly because he is seen as the true conservative of the pack. You know, Romney flip flops. Romney will say anything he needs to in order to get a vote. Newt Gingrich is, of course, a pathological <laughs> egomaniac. Yes, not a great um, role model for for morality. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Ron Paul is equally as opposed to birth control as Rick Santorum, at least on a moral basis. Um, Santorum is seen as the go-to guy for the religious right because they because can't, he wears sweater vests. He wears sweater vests, and you can't vote for a Mormon for God's <laughs> yeah. sakes. You know, so he is he is polling quite well, but um, Santorum on the issue of birth control, and this is an article coming from the Associated Press. Santorum says, "quote He won't try to take away the pill or condoms, but he believes states should be free to ban them if they want. So the federal government shouldn't take away condoms or the pill, but states should have the right." To do that, which is far from the mainstream of thinking. Condoms, condoms for God's sakes. We're not talking about abortion here. We're talking about contraception. The article goes on to say he argues that the Supreme Court erred when it ruled in 1965 that married Americans have a right to privacy that includes the use of contraceptives. Oh, you, yeah. know, he, you know, he said that. Um, if it were ever the case that uh, the Supreme Court were to allow gay marriage, that he would he would overturn the Supreme Court. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm glad he's read the Constitution. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's it nice that he knows what the office that he's running for, <laughs> yes. and the powers that are the, given to that, the powers that are granted him. <laughs> yeah, the president is God. He can do whatever he wants. Supreme Court, Congress, be damned. I'm king of America. That's right. The president gets to rewrite the Constitution every you know, every four years. Mm-hmm. Santorum said. Of the dangers of contraception and the permissive culture it encourages, quote, many of Christian faith have said, well, it's okay. Contraception is okay. It's not okay. It's a license to do things in the sexual realm 
that is counter to how things are supposed to be. Sexual realm. If it's not for purposes of procreation, oh, then you diminish this very special bond between men and women. Oh, wow. and of course, we've talked about this previously on the show uh, with uh, Robert P. George. Robert P. George. Um, well, uh, he's taken that line. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that doesn't alienate him with more Christians. You Well, and that's the thing. The AP has some stats. Despite the church's teachings, 84% of U.S. Catholics believe a person who uses artificial birth control can still be a good Catholic, according to a CBS News poll. 84% of Catholics think that contraception is acceptable on some level, which is funny because 98% of them are using it. (laughs) Um, And 89% of Catholic women favor expanding access to birth control for those who can't afford it, the nonpartisan public religion research institution found. So Rick Santorum is to the far right on this issue of even Catholics, even of people who agree with him theologically. So he's not he's not just horrifying to me. Exactly. <laughs> he is horrifying <laughs> to his own right. choir. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's um mm. and of course He's also, as you pointed out, anti-gay marriage, anti-gays in the military. He wants to reinstate don't ask, don't tell. Um, He says, quote, keep it to yourself whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. Sexual activity has absolutely no place in the military. He favors amending the Constitution to ban abortion. He believes um, life begins at conception. Which, by the way, Mm. not a biblical concept. And in fact, I was just reading an article this morning about how it really wasn't until the 1980s that that became a popular concept in any um, theological thinking. For a while, it was the the, – what was it? The quickening? Yeah, the the quickening. So at a certain – I can't remember how many months that is. But when – yeah, you first feel the baby turning and kicking. Yes. Is uh, that's that's when the soul it goes in there mm-hmm. through the pineal gland. Right. I'm, not <laughs> sure, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> where it enters. Descartes would know. Yes, of course. Um, <clears throat> and just one last uh, puddle of Santorum. Uh, he has he's challenged oh God, Barack Barry. Obama's Christian beliefs, saying that White House policies were motivated by quote a different theology. Which I, I, I guess is good because Christian theology is a terrible way to – Better not be motivated by any theology in my book. It, well, exactly. <laughs> he says Obama's agenda is, quote, not about you. It's not about your quality of life. It's not about your jobs. It's not about some phony ideal, some phony theology. Well, thank God for that. Oh, not a theology based on the Bible. A different theology. This isn't the whole Obama is a Muslim. Well, and he thing. says in in Santorum's defense, he has not said this before, <laughs> but here he says, if the president says he's a Christian, he's a Christian, which is the you know backhanded way of saying, uh, well, sure, if he says he's a Christian, I guess I, I can't guess. prove he's a Muslim. So, yeah, this is what we're going to be dealing with in Michigan for the next, uh, what, 10 days or so before we have our primary. We've got Santorum and uh, – Does Michigan have open primaries? We don't have open primaries. 
So, um, but I believe I'm a registered Republican. Because I'd like to fill in the hole with Santorum. Yeah. Mm. Uh, still better than Ron Paul. Anyway. And of course, in other uh, birth control related news, which we didn't talk about last time, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, which cut funding to Planned Parenthood and then quickly reversed themselves. Yeah. It's it's shocking that all this stuff is happening in an election year, right? I mean, this is clearly a way to galvanize the right against Obama and for the Republican politicians. I mean, the culture war issues never die down, but we right. definitely see an uptick in it the closer we get to election. Yeah. That's why I'm really eager for the primaries to be done with so we finally know who the candidate is so I can just stop paying attention. To yeah, right, stuff. right, right. <laughs> it, it, is so, it is so discouraging. Yeah, And um, Rick Santorum's big financial backer, um, Foster Freeze, did you hear what he had to say about contraception? Mm-hmm. This is the guy who, who is a major donor to the um, Santorum Super PAC, which mm-hmm. sounds – Way grosser than Santorum it really is. Super <laughs> what is this? He said, he said, quote, back in my days, they used the Bayer aspirin for contraceptives. The gals put it between their knees and it wasn't that costly. And then he said, well, it was just a bad joke and it, it bombed. Well, no, you actually believe that. <laughs> don't, don't act like you don't. You know, you can't get pregnant when you're doing it underwater. <laughs> Why don't people just get more hot tubs? Oh, dear God. But, uh, yeah, so that's the the American political scene. Now let's go to something even more ridiculous, presuppositionalism. Good transition. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. On our last episode, we went over the basics of this rather unique brand of Christian apologetics called presuppositionalism. Uh, The presuppositionalist believes that they don't have to give the usual evidential-style proofs of God. Rather, the very act of thinking and reasoning actually presupposes the existence of God. And they offer an argument, the transcendental argument for God, that attempts to establish that God is a necessary precondition for the existence and the intelligibility of logic, induction, and morality, and so that all other non-Christian worldviews are necessarily incoherent. Now, we talked about the particular contents of that argument on the last episode, and we discussed that it's not as easily refuted as it may seem at first glance. Many of the arguments that atheists are more accustomed to using actually don't really apply to this argument. So if you haven't heard the first part of this series, we recommend that you go back and do that. Now, in this episode, we are going to offer some arguments that directly challenge the soundness of the transcendental argument for God, or TAG for short. We will address each of those three areas, logic, induction, and morality, and attempt to demonstrate that Christian theism cannot provide the necessary preconditions for intelligibility for any of them. 
And we will also share a number of internal critiques, critiques that do presuppose the Christian worldview is true, but then go on to demonstrate that in doing so, we will necessarily lead ourselves into contradictions and absurdities. And so the Christian worldview is incoherent. What we will not be doing on this episode is answering the presuppositionalists' demand that we give ourselves an account for principles of logic, inductive reasoning, and morality from a non-theistic perspective. Those are interesting questions, and we will address them on a future episode. But first things first, we want to assess whether or not TAG is actually sound. Because if Christianity is incoherent, then the presuppositionalist has no basis on which to argue the impossibility of the contrary. Not if their own position is impossible. Uh, but before we lay that all out, I think we need to address a critic of ours. At choosinghats.com, there was there's there's a there's a guy named Chris Bolt there who did a hour long uh, critique of our last episode. It was it's largely disappointing, uh, a very nitpicky <laughs> critique, and several times he would pause the audio to complain about some misunderstanding that we were spreading, only to push play again and hear that exact uh, explanation clarified in, in a way that he would <laughs> it, appreciate. Yeah, it was so funny, actually, listening to it, like, oh, gosh, these people are so ignorant. Why don't they just stop and listen and try to understand our position and then he presses play, and we start repeating the exact same thing that he was trying to clarify. It's like, uh, why don't you listen to the entire podcast? It's not the best way to do a critique. No, it's it's frankly. really disingenuous, I think, yeah. and makes for a very uncomfortably long listening session. Yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't make it through the whole thing. But there was maybe a few points that I thought were, were worth bringing up and, and, and possibly uh, correcting ourselves on. There, were, there was a point that we had said uh, that, that the presuppositionalist does not think that they have a burden of proof. And... I don't think that's that's entirely accurate, I guess. Uh, they do think that they do have a burden of proof, but that they would distinguish between the reason someone's, someone believes something and the actual cause of that belief. So, hmm. I mean, it's, it's not as though it's, it's a purely intellectual thing because whether or not I get persuaded to an argument is not whether or not I, I find their, their proof, whatever that is, is whatever, whether I find that convincing necessarily. The key to that is, is of course, God's grace, and that is what determines. So there, there should be a kind of clarification and understanding that their argumentation is, is, not, is not essential to that process. You know, I don't need right. to necessarily hear argumentation. I could be sitting here one day, and God could just insert Christian belief into me. And th there was another thing on, on, on the episode description. We, we had said that they don't make arguments for God. And I, I think what we meant when we were saying this is that they don't make arguments for God in, in the traditional sense and that they argue right. from a neutral standpoint. Now, uh, I think it's Van Til who actually does think that there are valid proofs for the existence of God from a neutral standpoint. But he would say that, you know, the, these are 
kind of useless because, you know, we're, we're too corrupt and depraved to be able to comprehend these and to follow them to their conclusions. Mm. Fair enough. I think other <clears throat> presuppositionalists had the objection that um, uh, proofs for God don't always prove uniquely the Christian God. Whereas the transcendental argument, they say, does. So, yes. But I, I, I too, found that to be a rather minor nitpicky objection. Uh, and so I'm sure Bolt is going to be listening and doing a play-by-play critique of this one. I, I, my, my request, I don't think this is going to do any good, but my request is, you know, listen to the entire episode. You may have an objection to something we say, but it might actually be addressed later on in the episode. So listen to the whole thing first before you jump in and critique it. I, I think that's just being charitable, and besides, it's going to make it much easier for us and uh, any of our fans who want to to listen to your critique. Now, can we set him up? Can we say something outlandish that's absolutely not true and pause and then say, <laughs> obviously that's not true. <laughs> Meanwhile, he spent 20 minutes refuting our claims. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that would be fun. So just if you are listening, know that we may do that. So listen to the whole thing (laughs) just in case. All right. There are some excellent direct challenges to the transcendental argument for God. Some of the best critiques I've seen have come from uh, Michael Martin, but uh, but then my hero for the the week uh, is Mitch LeBlanc, uh, who's been writing on – is it Urban – UrbanPhilosophy.net. He has some great critiques that the presuppositionalists have tried to counter, and I I haven't seen anyone where I've felt they've been successful. Michael Martin originally proposes this argument, and Mitch LeBlanc then defends it. The transcendental argument for God is actually vulnerable to a Euthyphro-style dilemma. So we've talked about the Euthyphro dilemma before. In the version that Martin will present, we're just swapping out uh, the principles of logic for God's goodness. Greg Bonson says, what are the laws of logic and how are they justified? We still don't have an answer to that question from a materialist standpoint, but from a Christian standpoint, we do have the answer. Obviously, they reflect the thinking of God. Uh, They are, if you will, a reflection of the way that God thinks and expects us to think. So the Euthyphro dilemma then is this. Does God think in a certain way because it's logical to do so? Or is thinking in a certain way logical because God does it? If you take the first horn, then the principles of logic are independent of God, and so tag fails. Mm -hmm. And if you take the second horn, then the premises of logic are not true necessarily. They're contingent on God. But if logic is contingent on God, this is going to lead to absurdities. As Michael Martin points out, Uh, Quoting him, logic presupposes that its principles are necessarily true. If the principles of logic are contingent on God, they are not logically necessary. Moreover, if principles of logic are contingent on God, God could change them. Thus, God could make the law of non-contradiction false. In other words, God could arrange matters so that a proposition and its negation were true at the same time. But this is absurd. How could God arrange matters so that New Zealand is south of China and that New Zealand is not south of it? So one must conclude that logic is not dependent on God 
insofar as the Christian worldview assumes that logic is so dependent, it's false. In, in what John Frame would reply to that, or rather what, what he did reply, uh, is that, quote, logic is neither above God nor arbitrarily decreed by God. Its ultimate basis is in God's eternal nature. God is a rational God and necessarily so, therefore logic is necessary. Human logical systems don't always reflect God's logic perfectly, but insofar as they do, they are necessarily true. Most people who are familiar with, with the Euthyphro Dilemma are going to recognize that this is yeah. the exact same move mm. yeah, that apologists move. make when, when we use this argument against a kind of theistic moral realism. You know, William Lane Craig will say God is necessarily good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was it just is not as that. though God somehow arbitrarily decrees the good. It is that the good is a reflection of God's necessarily yeah. good nature. Right. And I've... I'm at a loss to make any kind of meaningful sense <laughs> yeah. out of that. Right. Yeah, right. it's it's really hard. That there's something really odd about the move. Uh, it's not easy to put a finger on it. I'm going to kind of summarize LeBlanc's comments. I will post a link to LeBlanc's original article so you can see how he actually expresses this. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it justice. But here's part of the problem with that. Uh, the presuppositionalist wants us to believe that God exists necessarily and logical principles exist necessarily. Logical principles aren't contingent. The two are obviously related, but clearly they want God to have the primacy in this relationship, right? They want logic to depend on God, not the other way around. I could be wrong, but I, I seriously doubt they would be comfortable with us swapping the terms in this claim. You know, to say something like God is not above logic, his ultimate basis is logic's eternal nature. They're not going right. to be cool with or, that. Or logic right. is the precondition for the right. for the existence of God or something. But to explain to us why God's nature could not be any other way, they evoke logic. They say it's logically impossible for God to be any other way because God is necessarily rational. Now, it seems like the primacy just switched there. Mm. It sure looks like what they're doing is they're appealing to a standard separate from God. God depends on logic. If that's not what they're saying, then the whole thing looks very circular. As LeBlanc puts it, it says, based on God's nature, it is logically impossible for God's nature to be different because God is necessarily a rational God. Seems awfully circular, but actually that might be what's intended. Maybe this is meant to be a tautology of sorts, right? God exists and logical principles exist, would actually be expressing the same proposition. And there's actually some precedent for this thinking in theology. In philosophy of religion, this doctrine is known as divine simplicity. It's the idea that God is not made up of component parts. He's identical to his attributes. Right, exactly. Mm. God is simple, so God doesn't have qualities like goodness. God is goodness. Right. God is justice. He's not a being that is just. And kind of the the perk of this move is that purports to show that God's attributes can't possibly contradict because actually all of God's attributes are one. They're all all unified. And so you can preserve God's divine unity. And this this could actually be a, a, a reasonable an answer from for some kind of like deistic god or god of the philosophers but for a christian god yeah when you need right. to make that distinction between the father the son yeah. and the holy spirit and you need to have that distinction be 
a robust distinction, uh, this 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 divine simplicity is not going to cut it for you. Yeah, and that's why a lot of theologians actually reject it. It's not at all clear how you can maintain the Trinity, right? Because the idea of the Trinity is that these are all distinct persons. Alvin Plattiga, for example, uh, thinks that this position is actually heretical mm. because as he, he puts it, it reduces God down to a property, not a person. And the Christian God is a uniquely personal God. Uh, so this simply won't do. So I think Le, LeBlanc rightly dismisses Frame's defense against the Euthyphro dilemma. Uh, he, he writes in one of his articles, it simply cannot be the case that logic is both contingent upon God's existence and logically necessary. It must be one or the other. It seems to be an understanding of the presuppositionalists that nothing can exist independently of God, but that is a very elementary mistake in philosophy of religion as logically necessary abstract objects must exist independently. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on then to uh, to justify his belief in the dependence of God on logic by saying, you know, necessarily X depends on Y for its existence if and only if Y were not to exist, neither would X. So uh, if the logical if logical principles didn't exist, God would not exist. Therefore, if God exists, he depends on logical principles. And that just puts the presuppositionalist right back on the first horn of the dilemma. Their right. only way out is on the second horn to say that logic depends on God. Any, any concept, it all falls apart. Any concept of God must be preceded conceptually by, by logic itself. If you're going to refer to something like a God, some concept that is coherent – the laws of logic must be conceptually prior to that. So Chris yeah. Bolt and others have a really lame objection to this. Uh, they, they basically say that what LeBlanc and Martin are doing here is strawmanning the presuppositionalist because the presuppositionalist's position is that logical principles are not contingent. So by insisting then that they are and using this as their argument to defeat TAG, they are arguing against a straw man. Well, I think that's obviously a weak critique because LeBlanc is not just assuming or pretending that the presuppositionalist holds this position. He addresses it straight out. He addresses that they hold it and he addresses the reasons why it's not a coherent position. It's not one actually available to them. So, so, so this is not a straw man argument. It's an argument. Ironically, the presuppositionalists are setting up a straw man argument against his argument. Yeah. So. That's a pretty common tactic of yeah. theirs. If they don't – no one ever really formulates the transcendental argument the way they want it to be. Every, every time any kind of uh, a critique is brought up, they, as we saw with Bolt, they will just nitpick the hell out of it. If there's any way to dismiss it, they will. So that argument is a direct challenge to the transcendental argument. It, it proves that it's unsound. To quote Gene Whitmer from his 2006 talk, Atheism, Reason, and Morality, he says, quote, I'm reminded of a famous parody from Moliere in which a pill's ability to cause sleep is said to be explained by its dormitive virtues, <laughs> i.e. its sleep-causing power. 
In the same way, the explanation is merely pushed back. Logic is explained by God's nature, his, well, you know, his logic-causing nature. Right. So this is not an explanation. This is just a, a tautologist's empty yeah. claim. It's not a, a, an account, as right. would there's, say. There's it's no, a tautology. Exactly. I mean, it's simply not an explanation that, that should be taken seriously. Uh, LeBlanc offers another indirect challenge. And again, I'm, I'm going to use a shortened version of it. I will link to the original article. But I just thought this one, this one was so simple but so brilliant. I'll just read the argument. Premise one, if logic depends on God, then if God possibly doesn't exist, then some law of logic possibly fails. Premise two, no law of logic can possibly fail. Premise three, so God necessarily exists. Premise four, and this is the key one, but there is a possible world in which God does not exist. Therefore, conclusion, logic is not dependent on God. Now, the thing with this argument, it, it might seem a little strange at first. What is he trying to argue here? It is a reductio ad absurdum. It's trying to show that if you accept, if you accept the if you transcendental step the argument, worldview, yes. there's something incoherent about yes, it. Yes, there will be something incoherent. Uh, but what's neat about this argument is that premise, premise four, but there is a possible world in which God does not exist, that premise uh, remains sound unless the Christian can offer a proof of God. <laughs> and not just any proof. It has to be an It, it has to be an ontological argument. <laughs> it has to prove that God's existence <clears throat> is necessary. That's the only way right. that you can actually invalidate that premise. Until the presuppositionalist offers a proof for God, an ontological right. proof for God, which would be heretical cannot, because it would be treating yeah. God as subject to their reason. Right. <laughs> so, so, so. Nice. In, in other words, in other words, the uh, tag, uh, the transcendental argument for God is unsound until they take up the ontological hmm. argument. Which, wow. good luck with that. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of uh, theologians. I mean, of course, there's many, many different ontological arguments, but a lot of theologians won't e won't even touch ontological arguments. Mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas yeah. wouldn't even touch the ontological argument. You know, the oldest versions, of course, he believed God exists necessarily, but he didn't think you could make an argument. No, it was uh, one of his proofs for God like, is the ontological argument. But that was Saint was, uh, Anselm. Yeah. Uh, Anselm. Uh, oh, you're right. Uh, yeah. You're right. And I'm uh, getting my Catholic yeah. theologians confused. Come on, get on it, Dave. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so I, I thought, uh, I thought that was great. And and again, I haven't seen any kind of serious counter yeah. of that argument. I mean, I guess they could just say, well, that's my belief, and the the they're just presupposing that God is necessary, right? Yeah, but that's exactly what's at that's, issue with right. the critique. That that so, means that their 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 tag is it can't yeah. be sound, and tag, that's that's where the right. point is. <laughs> right? They, I mean, they can presuppose anything they want, but if they're going to try and make it seem as though it's rational for us to assent to that, right? Yeah. They have a a much bigger and job ahead of them. Once the challenge is made, the ball's in their court. Right now, now the uh, burden shifts to them. So another uh, another objection that, that LeBlanc brings up, which I thought was pretty interesting, we're used to hearing from them that the that no non-Christian worldview is sufficient to account for logic. Uh, in fact, this is an essential premise to the transcendental argument, that no such possible worldview could ever account for this, that they're all necessarily logically incoherent. 
So what would it mean for somebody to account for logic? Is pointing to the fact that your nature is such that your thoughts are unable to conceive of a square circle, is that good enough to account for logic? It sure seems that that is exactly how God is accounting for logic. Is it not sufficient then for our own account of logic, for me to just recognize that I'm unable to even conceive of an object that is a square circle? For me to be unable to do that, is that not good enough? Because it sure seems like that is exactly what they're saying of God. One could maybe say that you know this kind of self-justification could not really hope to account for the universality of logic, but is this true? It is impossible for anybody that has existed or ever will exist to be able to conceive of a square circle. So this suggests that logic can be universally justified in the same sense that God justifies logic through himself. Uh, these laws of logic, like the law of non-contradiction, can be known a priori in a self-justifying manner. Uh, they are necessarily true. Another concern was that any kind of explanation of what it would mean for God to account for logic, yeah. it seems like that would include, if the explanation of that is because God thinks logically and there's just logic happening in God's mind, why is that there? Necessarily, God knows all true propositions right out of the box. He doesn't need to reason to them. So if God's mind is always inferring to conclusions, he's always reasoning, right? Because that's how logic is justified. Yeah, sure. um, if that's what he's doing, it seems reasonable for us to ask why. To intentionally and genuinely infer something, it suggests a goal of gaining understanding by going through a linear process which ends in new knowledge in the case of inductive inference or better understanding of the relationships of different premises in the case of deductive inference. It would seem that a robust explanation of what it means for God to account for logic would explain why it is that God, why his thoughts are busy inferring to conclusions that he's already aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That seems very strange. Right. Yeah, so if all of our logical principles are somehow entities, right, transcendent entities, because mm -hmm. they are the contents of the mind of God. I, I see. So so where, why the rules of inference? <laughs> there's, right. There's no need. Mm -hmm. Because in any deductive argument, right, uh, the, all the information and in the conclusion is going to be contained in the premises. The conclusion offers no additional information well, just right. to us fallible human yeah. beings. It might reveal something in there that we that we didn't notice uh, a relationship. God mm -hmm. would have no need but, to deduce anything. Right. right. So he's going to have all the conclusions. Right. He's going to have. Yeah. He's going to know the the conclusion of even even just valid arguments. You know, I mean, if if they want to give a any kind of robust account, that that would need to include that because that yep. just seems yeah. very very strange. It seems very improbable that an all knowing God would be busy inferring things all day. Right. Yeah. So let's move on to the next phase of the transcendental argument for God. The notion that, that Christian theism and only Christian theism can account for induction, inductive reasoning, and therefore the scientific method. Mm -hmm. An RD listener brought up a good objection on our blog. He said that miracles, miracles within the Christian worldview makes induction impossible. The Christian can't use inductive reasoning because God is changing the world right. all the time. Well, they, miracles, can, they can use it, they just couldn't find any real justification. You couldn't rely it. on yeah. it right. because miracles are the suspension of the laws of the physical world. Right. right. 
Chris Bolt of ChoosingHats.com responded to the commenter on his blog. He says, uh, reading Chris Bolt, Reynolds thinks that uh, covenantal apologetics, that's what he calls presuppositional Hmm. apologetics. I'm sure there's some tiny little nuance now that he's going to (laughs) pause and scream about. (laughs) Me being so careless as to not get the distinction just right. He says, covenantal apologists are not committed to some concept of unvarying laws of the universe. Some do not even believe that there are any such things as laws. Perhaps laws are merely descriptions of the regularities we observe in nature, and the Christian knows that these regularities obtain through time and location because it is God who's overseeing them in that manner. But the atheist has no basis upon which to affirm this understanding of regularities as one of their own. David Hume has famously pointed it out. The question here is not about instances where nature does not behave in a regular fashion. Anomalies presuppose regularities. And I want to pause right here because that's not exactly right. It's true in this sense. Anomalies can be said to presuppose regularities in that uh, the word anomaly only makes sense against some sort of background expectation (laughs) of what we should actually see. Uh, but anomalies can wreak havoc to scientific theories. If they keep popping up, they should force us to re- revise our ideas Absolutely. about what those regularities are. So and, and science is structured to include those yes. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a risk of an equivocation there. But anyways, I'll continue his comment. That's just being nitpicky. the christian can account for the regularities in virtue of god controlling and ordering his creation the atheist cannot perhaps there are laws of nature and they do not vary in that case god could intervene such that some law is not broken but neither is it in play in that instance so there is (laughs) what yeah yeah So, so there is no successful objection here and the atheist has still left having dodged the real answer. So God can intervene, <laughs> say say the, the parting of the Red Sea, okay? God intervenes but is not actually breaking any laws of nature, which would be – So, so no, buoy- he's buoyancy just, he's still just, holds as right. there's a wall of water. It, it's just suspended at the moment. What is that? What's, what's the difference? That, the difference yeah, between violation difference? versus suspension. I, I don't even care. I could just take him up on this. He's he's saying, okay, so God makes sure nature behaves in regular ways, except, of course, when God doesn't. When he doesn't want or it to. Or <laughs> God ensures that fixed laws of nature exist, except, of course, when he suspends them. Right. And this is somehow supposed to give us a foundation for induction. The thing, the thing with these presuppositionalists are they're thinking of this in the abstract. They just kind of think of this as, oh, David Hume has a problem of induction. Well, how about that? I have a God for that. Okay, good. (laughs) They're not thinking how this would actually affect real science as it's going on. So look, here's a few examples. You're a doctor and you're testing a new cancer drug. You set up your trials and everything. Now, the people who responded to the treatment, were they really responding to the treatment? Or is this just an instance of of God actually intervening mm-hmm. and healing them? Or how placebo. Do we, yeah. <laughs> how do we know uh, what they're actually responding to? Right. 
A seismologist is poring over data from a recent earthquake. Is this caused by plate tectonics or is God just smiting people? And of course they could say, okay, so God is smiting people, but he's doing it through plate tectonics, right? He's doing it (laughs) through some sort (laughs) of natural process. Um, Which happens in the Old Testament. Fine. That's, that, that means they can say that no violation or suspension of natural laws occurs. But that doesn't help us to predict when the next earthquake is going to occur. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't which even is agree exactly to that. the idea of, of induction, what we're right. looking for with inductive reasoning. Right. So what about the one guy's house who didn't collapse in that earthquake? Can we use that data to assess our architectural designs, how safe they are? Or was he saved, you know, by God? He was spared Mm. by God. What if he's a Christian? Do we just go, oh, shit, well, he's a Christian. I guess, you know, do we drop all Calvinists out of our data set just to ensure that no sort of divine (laughs) protection is happening? And and these aren't like petty hypotheticals. We have an episode, our our first episode in the series, uh, Creationism versus Psychology. We actually saw this happen. Yes. In a major psychological journal, there's a professor from Brigham Young University who was railing against the naturalistic assumptions in mm. psychology yeah. and introduced what a, uh, what a non-naturalistic psychology would look like where right in the middle of experimental designs, God could be working on the heart mm-hmm. of, of the person. And we, we showed from his own logic how the, the whole practice of psychology would fall apart. Right. Um, As it should. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we could argue that might not be a bad Luke's thing. Luke's not here. This threatens the entire foundation of induction. The only real uh, way one could answer this is if they had some kind of, like, number – some kind of probability that they could assess of the probability that God did intervene and, and yeah. said said um, result, right? Like, oh, uh, we get such and such result. Uh, what is the probability that this is God? Unless they have some kind of clue to what that could be. If right. they know how often Which they he, can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't that know would be any biblical because... probability analysis of, of God's... Well, and then that know, would suggest that God could only intervene a certain number of right. times out of a hundred. Right. It would assume that God would consistently hold to that kind of... Which um, clearly he does not. One last thing, a note about natural laws. Any absolute statement can be disconfirmed by one counter instance. Right. right? So all swans are white... It only takes one confirmed observation of a black swan to disconfirm Mm -hmm. that statement. Mm -hmm. How could we ever know what a law of nature is then on this account? Because any attempt to falsify it, if we happen to see something something that appears to be a violation of the law of nature, maybe it's not a violation of the law of nature. Maybe it's just a suspension. Maybe God's just intervening. So how would we falsify uh, attempt to uh, falsify these in any kind right, of way. Exactly. An intervening God simply cannot provide the basis for inductive reasoning. They would still, I mean, he's still going to make the claim that we don't have any rational basis for induction. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe that's true. Maybe induction is just something we have, is, is just a necessary assumption that we right. have to make to right. be actors in the world in any kind of real sense. I'm um, kind of okay with that. Right. But since and, these these are internal critiques. We are trying to demonstrate that the Christian worldview right. is incoherent. 
maybe the ball will be in our court later and who knows right. if we'll be able to fare any better. But that doesn't get the presuppositionalist out of the need to defend the coherency of its worldview. Gene Whitmer in his 2006 talk uh, says, quote, it's of course an interesting fact that we cannot argue for the claim that induction will lead to the truth without presupposing that very claim. Of course. But it is frankly absurd for the presuppositionalist to complain about the presupposition when he, of course, admits doing the very same thing about his beliefs in God. If that's a problem in our view, mm -hmm. then you have to admit it is a problem you in your view as well. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the point that uh, it's incredibly destructive to science on our... <laughs> yeah. That's not an external critique, too. That's an internal critique. We're assuming, for the case of that argument, that, yeah. okay... Maybe God is the foundation of these regularities. Well, guess mm. what? We still don't have a basis for inductive reasoning. Yep. Right. We, we might have a basis for some sort of order or regularity in nature that sometimes obtains, but that's, that's not the question. The question is the reliability of our inductive methods of logic. Mm -hmm. And just to show that they don't really – I don't even think they take their own conclusions seriously. If this is how a presuppositionalist thinks, uh, shouldn't Calvin College – be full of departments that are busily working on revising modern probability theory to account <laughs> for all of this? Isn't there a potential contradiction then again with the laws of logic? Because something like Bayes' theorem can be proved, right? It's based in logic and yet it tells us how we should go about thinking about probability. But Bayes' theorem couldn't possibly apply in a universe where God is constantly intervening. Its, it's, it's uh, measurements would be useless. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the next phase of the transcendental argument for God. Christian theism is or provides the only necessary preconditions for intelligibility for morality. Another comment on our blog, um, actually it might have been the same commenter, said that a god who uh, orders things like the killing of pregnant women and kids shoots down the idea of absolute morality, which I tend to agree. Right. It's certainly making it incoherent. And I, I have to read Bolt's response to this as well. Well, one could say that um, uh, the very idea of calling, of assuming that is a bad thing, right, this kind of uh, – this kind of appeal to this objective moral value of it being a wrong thing to kill Canaanite kids, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the problem is, is that they're going to necessarily appeal to that intuition to justify the belie their belief in objective moral values. So someone like Craig is going to say something like, we all know deep down inside uh, that, that – yeah. Kill, that, that torturing a baby, I think, is the example he uses, is, mm -hmm. is morally wrong. So he's taking this mass intuition, right? right? And he's concluding that, oh, the best explanation is that there are these these objective moral values. Right. But then at the same time, Craig turns around and justifies something that all of our mass intuitions would completely recoil against, which is the command to to gut a child with a knife because God told you to. Right. Yeah. Right. You know this inconsistency of of appealing to mass intuitions, mass moral intuitions, when it's convenient, and then abandoning mm -hmm. them when when yeah. you need to justify some disgusting thing, uh, is is something that needs to be called attention to. Yeah. Now, now that's not exactly the presuppositionalist argument, right? They're they're saying right, right. They might actually agree with your critique of Craig here. 
Right, right. Right. We're not going to appeal to some sort of neutral grounds. The the only ground for morality is is just God mm-hmm. and presupposing God and presupposing the truth of the Bible. Anyways, Bolt's quote here. Absolute morality, whatever that is, what he's saying was tongue-in-cheek, actually. He does believe in absolute morality. He says, absolute morality would apply to human beings in one sense, and not necessarily to God in that same sense. There are relevant differences between God and his creatures, even in the realm of morality. This is nothing new. It's been part of Christian theology for thousands of years. So, for example, it's perfectly right for God, the creator, to take the life of one of his creatures. He owns that life. But it is completely wrong for a human being to take the life of another without God's permission. So there is no good objection here. And then he adds, I dare say most atheists are fine with abortion, which is the murder of an unborn baby. Atheists are wicked people, so they are forced to play fast and loose with questions about their moral standards. Cute. Mm. Well, let's talk about absolutes. And we'll use Bolt's comment as a springboard. If God can command people to kill, then the moral status of thou shalt not kill is not absolute. It's relative. It wouldn't be just relative to humanity. Uh, You know, maybe they could say, well, it's absolute for humanity to follow those rules. Mm -hmm. Even that doesn't work. Right. Uh, Because if some people are allowed to kill... Uh, then it's it's it is relative to a certain handful of people and their particular context. So, or, or for example, the obligation to to kill a witch. Yeah. Right. Uh, that that applies at a particular time, but apparently doesn't apply now. I don't think that most Christians would think that they're obligated to kill a witch if they were to right. come across one. It's covenantal relativism. Whatever is, yeah, <laughs> it's covenantal <laughs> relativism. Sounds like dispensationalism, which should be a smack in the face to them. So what we're trying to say is whatever absolute morality is, thou shalt not kill is not contained in it. That is that is not absolute. And we could start going down through the list, right? We could start saying, well, human sacrifice. We have in Judges 11 and 1 Kings 13, uh, God... Isn't there some either of that commanding in, um, or allowing human sacrifice to take place? Th- doesn't that happen in the New Testament too? What's that guy's name? Oh, Jebus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Je- I, th- I think that was the one, right? Jebus gets nailed to the X. T, to lowercase in t. Judges. Lowercase t. <laughs> Were you referring yeah. to? Okay, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, they're they're going to, of course, argue that you know God never explicitly said okay for that. Uh, but well, the narrative is very clear yeah. what it's implying and the causation. They there. can't say that of 1 Kings 13 because God flat out says you're going to go uh, burn these – you're going to mm-hmm. sacrifice these pagans on their altars and everything else. So they can't maintain that. Murder, obviously, we we know we know killing happens all the time. Jealousy, do we even need to quote verses? Same with enslavement of human beings. Cannibalism, Jeremiah nineteen verse nine, Ezekiel five ten, Leviticus twenty six twenty nine, all uh, all have God uh, forcing human beings to uh, to eat their own flesh. Eat their own flesh or eat or other the flesh of their flesh. relatives. Yeah, this is friends. the God of love, mind you. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Swell guy, that God. If all of these things God can command other people to do, mm-hmm. none of these things are evil in any kind of absolute sense. 
Mm-hmm. Again, they can only be evil relative to certain people at certain times right. who are doing them. And there are some actually some very problematic examples of this. God can deceive. Frequently. Second Chronicles 18.22 uh, says, So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. So he's influencing prophets to lie, to deceive people. But but God wouldn't lie. Oh, yeah. Right, well, because it's part of his necessary nature, and thus the moral value of not right. lying yeah. is a reflection of that necessary nature. Right. So apparently they believe absolute honesty is compatible with a being who engages mm-hmm. in deception, right. which I think is well, a pretty patent absurdity there. God is totally depraved. Uh, yeah, and they would say, uh, they would quote Titus 1-2 as saying, God right. doesn't lie. But exactly. as we're showing, he actually does. So Titus right. yeah. no, there was a rather Titus large, 1-2 is a lie. There was a, a rather lie. large discussion about the deception of God on urban philosophy. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the biblical arguments were never brought up. Right, which are the defeaters to this. Right. Second, Second Thessalonians uh, 2-11 is another one. Uh, For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth uh, but took pleasure on righteousness will be condemned. Uh, God is is sending a spirit of deception on these people to ensure that there's no chance of them repenting. And we're supposed to be held morally responsible for this. Yeah. Yeah, which actually this is an interesting idea. It's similar verses with Moses, right, in Exodus where he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Yes, I was uh, just thinking of that. Yeah, Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his officials in order that I may show these signs of mine among them uh, and that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I've made fools of the Egyptians. Right. What they like to say, right, is that Pharaoh hardened his uh, own heart first and then God hardened his heart mm-hmm. and that that somehow, you know, makes sense of God doing the hardening. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, when actually if if you read the account, I think it's after the seventh plague uh, or something, you know, Pharaoh starts changing his mind. Yes. And God steps in there to harden his heart. And this this Exodus 10 verse 1 and 2 gives us God's motive. Mm -hmm. He says flat out he doesn't want him to repent because then he doesn't get to go through all the ten plagues. Yeah. So, and I want you guys to have good stories to tell your descendants. Right. Yeah. And this makes so, a lot of sense when you when you look at Egypt uh, and its complete control over, what is it, like the early Bronze Age Canaanites. They had complete <laughs> control. And so to to give the middle finger to your your overlord right. Uh, right. makes a lot of sense. They're just trying to, you know, humiliate these these disgusting Egyptians. Side note, I, I wonder how Calvinists, I mean, I'm sure there's, exegetical gymnastics they can perform uh, on this one. But I, I really wonder that. how Calvinists maintain this doctrine of total mm-hmm. depravity, right? Because God is actually has to positively intervene to ensure people don't repent. Yeah, Kind of yeah. goes against this notion that God has to supply the uh, Holy Spirit to work on them for repentance. Or at least maybe it defines it in the opposite way. God... Uh, God, God will the... occasionally stop preventing them from <laughs> uh, either way though we have a we have a serious problem right because if God is deceiving 
any being who engages, engages in deception is not absolutely trustworthy. God is engaging in deception. Right. Therefore, God is not absolutely trustworthy. It really this undermines induction. It really under well, it undermines induction. It, too. it undermines, undermines all three logic. branches exactly. It undermines morality mm-hmm. because how do we how do we trust God with any of these things? Here's an additional verse that undermines their moral worldview. Ezekiel twenty five seventeen and the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides. <laughs> Which I don't think was really... It, it's but, not but really it's, the <laughs> Bible passage. It should have been, though. It's close. <laughs> it's in the book of uh, Tarantino. Yep, that's right. Ezekiel twenty twenty five twenty six. This is Yahweh talking about how he's been treating the children of Israel lately. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. I defiled them through their very gifts in offering up all their firstborn in order that I might horrify them so they that might know that I am the Lord. This verse wow. clearly says that God will command people to do things that will defile them mm-hmm. themselves. They can't base uh, their own morality clearly on God's commands because the fact that God commands them to do something is not always a guarantee that yeah. that is going to be righteous. Even mm-hmm. if you did what exactly what God commanded, you um, may be defiling yourself. Right. Unless unless they can somehow show how holiness and defilement can exist at mm. the same time <laughs> and in the same respect. So it's a kind of uh, divine simplicity of, of moral facts. The evil <laughs> and the good can are identical. This is this should be one for a future episode. Uh, but I'm I'm working on a critique to that I don't think will be all that hard. You could probably supply the arguments yourself. But there's no way any Pauline account of salvation, sanctification, uh, the whole purpose of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, cannot be intelligible with these with these verses in the Bible. I'll I'll save the particular arguments for that later. But as a quick glimpse. The uh, whole concept of sin just becomes completely incoherent when we take all of these verses mm-hmm. into account. Christianity just rests its, – its moral worldview is incoherent. They like to talk about the conditions of – these conditions of intelligibility. I think when you start going through all the actions of God, we are stripping away content from that proposition God is holy all mm-hmm. the time. And I don't even know what could possibly stand there. Right, because holiness, whatever it is, is apparently compatible with human sacrifice, murder, jealousy, enslavement, cannibalism, deception, ordering people to defile themselves, forbidding repentance, even adultery. He commands adultery in certain circumstances. Actually, the only one I couldn't find on the Ten Commandments, uh, other than you know, other the, other than the first three, which are blasphemy. Right. <laughs> Hard for uh, him to argue. I had a, I had a, tr- I had trouble finding a, a, a clear instance of of them uh, God commanding somebody to steal. Hmm. But actually, if you take the parable of Jesus of the dishonest steward, maybe yeah. we could make well, an argument it, it, there. But what, that's a parable, so they could probably weasel a lot of that land from the Canaanites. Oh, there you go. You know. Yeah, but except well, yeah, it would always yeah, be his. The idea be this has to be an internal critique, so yeah, we have to right. address it on their terms right. and show that it leads to an right. absurd conclusion. And, and God would always say that that was His land. Yes, and He's just rearranging uh, the the human ownership. Right, right. But I think concepts like love 
and justice and holiness, if they're compatible with all of these actions, perfect love, perfect holiness, mm. perfect justice is compatible with this, I think we pretty much emptied those words of any intelligible meaning. Yeah. Right. So I think the challenge is on them to explain what intelligible content is left. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think they can do it. Any example they provide, I'm almost certain, will find something else in God's behavior that will uh, contradict it. But even if they can, if they can find it, I can guarantee you it's going to be something quite trivial and unimpressive, Mm -hmm. something on the order of God won't violate any land contract deals he's made in the presence of bisected livestock. Fair enough. Except, of course, when he does. Exactly. Uh, or God won't completely here's, – here's one that I think they might be able to claim. God won't completely eradicate the Jewish race. He'll always leave at least one. Well, you got to leave at least two, right? No, not necessarily. There's, no, okay. there's a part where he tells Moses, I'm going to wipe out every single last one of them except for you and we're going to start over again. <laughs> oh, and then Moses and, appeals and Mos- to yeah. his promise and God's like, oh, crap, you're right. It's, 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 if you, actually, Exodus if you read, if you read the passage really closely, it's not the promise that turns God around so much as the uh, appeal to his reputation. He says, right. what the hell are these Egyptians going to think? Yeah. You've dragged us all the way. You did all that liberation <laughs> and dragged us all the way out to the mountain just to kill us all. Yeah, and, and, and uh, he's like, "Oh God, this would look bad amongst the Egyptians." And then, of course, something wow. similar. <laughs> something similar happens in Genesis 18 when uh, God wants to destroy all of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. and Abraham appeals to him, and he's like, "Shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is right?" And God's like, Ugh. "All right," I and he keeps lowering time. the number, and God meets him there every <laughs> yep, freaking time. Yep, yep. But, yeah, I mean, if if God alone is the the necessary is what's necessary for moral intelligibility, uh, I don't even know what those words mean anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they can tell us. Yeah, hopefully. Well, look forward to hearing the responses from all the presuppositionalists out there. I'm sure there will be many and lengthy responses. We know exactly how presuppositionalists are going to respond to this. They're they're actually quite predictable. Are you presupposing their response? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay, good. They're going to try to turn on us and say, well, look, you haven't provided the necessary preconditions for logic. How can you even make these arguments? Right. You know, your arguments against us right now are presupposing Christianity. Sorry, that option isn't available to you. Because many of these are either direct challenges to the soundness of the transcendental argument or they are internal critiques of Christianity. You may assume the Christian worldview is coherent, but if you're presented with a challenge to it, the ball is back in your court. You can argue tag to establish your right to presuppose God, but you can't presuppose tag or you aren't arguing at all. You have to answer objections to the soundness of the argument. You have to answer internal critiques purporting to show that the Christian worldview is incoherent. You have no basis to argue the impossibility of the contrary if your own position is impossible. Right. Yeah, the ability uh, for us to even account for these things is completely irrelevant to the validity of TAG. 
we could have an episode where we just where we would talk about how we would view these these various different things that logic, induction, and morality. But that's completely irrelevant to whether tag is the kind of uh, necessary precondition, yeah. whether mm-hmm. belief in God is. The it necessary could just be we're both screwed, right? Yeah. <laughs> that could be or the case. logic, or lo- or we ought to both start looking for some other foundation right. for logic. So in a in a future episode, I think an RD extra that will be coming out very soon. So uh, kind of a supplement to this episode, we will discuss foundations for logic, foundations for induction within an atheistic worldview, which I actually I don't even like saying that because atheism isn't a worldview. Right. right. But we will discuss world how views these that are compatible yes. with atheism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's going to be it for this time. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, email us your questions, comments, and so forth to doubtcast at gmail.com. Follow us on twitter.com slash doubtcast. Like us or friend us on Facebook. Shop in our stores, azzle.com slash doubtcast. Check out our blog as well as the other blogs over at freethoughtblogs.com. And quick programming note that may be of interest to many of our listeners. Ed Brayton, the man, is coming back to the radio. He will be on Public Reality Radio with Culture Wars Radio every Tuesday from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Standard Time, um, which will also be available on iTunes very soon, if not already. And you'll be able to download episodes from publicrealityradio.org and get more information there. Very, very excited to have Ed coming back um, to the airwaves. So um, check that out. Also, coming up in about a month or so, right? We don't have the exact date set yet. Um, We've got our live 100th episode of Reasonable Doubts. Extra long, extra full of doubtcasty goodness. Um, So full details will be available on our next episode, episode 99, and will be posted to our blog at Freethought Blogs, Twitter, Facebook, and all over the place. But you will actually be able to interact with us live. Oh, what a privilege. I know, right? <laughs> if you're in the area, there may even be cake. You, you have to you have to call or Skype in or something. You guys, if no one this, calls, I'm going to have because, to call and disguise yeah, my voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't, we're going to we're going to get local Grand oh, Rapidians God. calling in, and it's going to be a nightmare. And, and we love our local fans. Oh, but we love local fans. Uh, it's the I'm other. Just, I don't think they're going to be fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want that. Um, on our next episode, on our 99th episode, we will take a look at Mormonism. Now, we, we mentioned this on our previous episode and got several uh, former Mormons who emailed us. Mormons. Mormons. <laughs> Who emailed us immediately and said, if you want to talk about Mormonism, awesome. please talk to me. So we'll be um, trying to set up a, like a roundtable discussion with our former Mormons. Awesome. And I just want to say real quick, if there are any former Mormon ladies out there, it would be really nice to get a woman involved because I think the female um, experience in the Mormon church is going to be 
significantly different than the male experience. Or more, multiple Mormon Or women. multiple. There's no Mormon reason to stick to just one. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. If we have three guys, we need at least, what, nine, yeah, nine women? Yeah, something like that. Wow. So... Uh, I gotta watch uh, South Park for research. Yeah, that's right. Uh, get get your magical underwear on for our next episode. Grab your magic underwear and your caffeine-free sodas. Yeah. It's gonna be a Mormon good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, until then, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>